This episode is brought to you by Metrology.net. Better, cheaper, faster? They say pick any two. You can't have all three. But when it comes to automation with Metrology.net, you get all three. Better, cheaper, faster automation with ISO IEC 17025 measurement uncertainties. Find out more at Metrology.net. Welcome to the Metrology Today podcast. My name is Ryan Egbert, and I am your host today. And today's guest was actually brought to me by Henry Zumbrun. He recommended that I have Craig Lund on the show. And I am so excited to have him on the show. And actually, Henry joins in in the conversation later on in the, in the episode. Craig is the president and owner of Sapphire Proficiency Testing, where he is working to provide calibration and testing laboratories with solutions to meet requirements of ISO IEC 17025. Craig has maintained a career in the metrology field since 1997, working at notable places like Metler Toledo, Dell Computers, and Entech IRD Rockwell Automation. In 2002, Craig uh, began working at Battelle Memorial Institute, where he developed and managed technical calibration programs for nearly 15 years. And then in 2012, Craig became a contracted lead assessor for the American Association for Laboratory Accreditation, also known as A2LA, where he has performed over 200 assessments to date. And and he has done so well in that, that in 2019, Craig was awarded the A2LA Assessor Choice Award at the A2LA Annual Technical Forum. And then here in 2020, Craig purchased Sapphire Proficiency Testing and his experiences with A2LA as an assessor drove him to look for ways to help labs meet specific requirements related to ISO IEC 17025. I'm super excited to have Craig on the show today and as well as Henry later on in the show. And without further ado, let's get to the, the show with Craig Lunt. Thank you for listening. Well, Craig, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. This is a, a new thing for me, so this will be interesting. Yeah, it will be a good time. And also later on, we'll have Henry in. We're, we're going to talk with Greg, uh, Craig here first. Greg and Craig. No, just kidding. <laughs> with Craig here for a minute, and then we'll bring in Henry. So, Craig, tell me about your career. Tell me about how you got <clears throat> tangled up into this crazy web of metrology. Um. All of it's by mistake, mostly. Um, and I think that's a story for most people, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't know anybody who said, I'm graduating high school and I'm going to go become a metrologist. Um, it just kind of happens. Uh, the doors open and you you know flow through them and, and that's kind of where it goes. Um, you know, all in all, my journey started uh, early, late 1990s, 97, 98. Okay. Um, I, 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 you know, worked for, for Mettler Toledo for a number of years, uh, as kind of a, I started out doing internal work, uh, repairing balances and all of their equipment internally. And that's really where I found out about calibration as a, um, uh, 
kind of a career. Uh, it makes the two of repair and calibration together, you know, in, in, in maintaining uh, customer equipment. And, and it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, I, I moved through uh, Mettler Toledo into some um, uh, uh, field service work. I did a lot of balanced field service work, work a lot of mechanical uh, in and out of, uh, you know, just about every laboratory from, you know, the Ohio area is where I'm from. So central Ohio area. Uh, and then, and then eventually worked into uh, working internally at a, a company called Battelle Memorial Institute, uh, which is a nonprofit uh, uh, organization that, uh, you know, they do all kinds of research. I, you can't even name what's there, but in, in, you'd have to have a whole podcast just to go through what they do. Nice. Um, but ultimately, we were an internal calibration laboratory that we did all the support work for their research groups. Um, and, and as we were talking in the beginning before we started here, uh, uh, that's where I made all of my mistakes. <laughs> Mistakes, uh, mistakes in the uh, actual calibration process. Yes, absolutely. Everything from uh, destruction of equipment to you know uh, the, the joke being letting the smoke out of the electronical you know, electronic equipment. Yeah, <laughs> let, let the smoke out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was it was a it was an awful experience and a great experience at the same time. Uh, and worked there for um, many many years uh, up until I think two thousand. 16, 17 is when I left officially, uh, but partially in between that time, I, I started to do uh, uh, assessments for 17025. Uh, that was basically, I was prodded on by uh, mutual friends here, Dylan Shaw, uh, that kind of gave me that opportunity uh, when he was working with uh, one of the ABs uh, to get me in with those groups and start going. And, and, and ever since then, uh, 2012, I've been doing, been doing assessments full time. Uh, for 17025 in, in everything from uh, <clears throat> calibration to provision testing providers to uh, reference material producers, uh, but, but mainly in calibration. Um, and then just up until recently last year, uh, I purchased a proficiency testing company called Sapphire Proficiency Testing. Uh, and that's kind of where I'm at right now, uh, kind of intertwined with what I do uh, accreditation wise, as well as with the proficiency testing. Yes. And I have a lot of questions about proficiency testing for our audience. Cause as I, as I told you before the show, a lot of our audience are students or very sure. young to the field. I, I have noticed, cause I, I had a few friends or I guess they are still my friend. I have a few friends that are A2LA assessors as well. And I did <laughs> kind of notice that uh, right when you get into that, I guess we'll call it mid-career range, you know, seven to yeah. 14 years. I, I got approached as well. That's kind of um, maybe a word of mouth thing. So yeah, I've, I've looked into that as well. And it seems like, you know, for those of you listening that are in that mid range, you know, it's a good experience at, in, from what I've heard. Did, did you have a good, ex do you, do you have a good experience doing assessments? I, I love it to be honest with you. I think it, it's, mm -hmm. it's been kind of my niche, uh, you know, going through is, is um, I've always been, you know, I've always been somebody who, who follows the rules in those respects and, and knowing what those are and applying those and coming up with unique ways of identifying what to do, you know, to meet certain requirements, things like that was always something that I enjoyed. Um, and I think that's something that, that, you know, uh, when I talk about Dilp, Dilp saw that early on with me because he was our consultant when I worked for Battelle Memorial. Uh, and that's how he kind of pushed me towards uh, becoming uh, the assessor uh, in that realm. Uh, and, I don't know, you know, I, I, at, 
you know, when I started in 2012, you know, I'd already had uh, nearly 15 years of experience in, you know, um, which is, is somewhat rare in, in, if you're not a military uh, uh, individual. If you didn't go to the military, you, you probably don't know what, what metrology is or calibration is, you know, mm-hmm. unless you fell into it, you know, post either college or post military. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, <clears throat> um, that's kind of, you know, the interesting part of it uh, when you look at it, uh, uh, how, how you get into the field, like you're saying, you know, that 14 to 15 year range, if you've been in that field for so long, you have experience to do that. Um, and I, I kind of, I felt like the younger, the, the little kid coming in because everybody that was an assessor when I was going in there was a good 10 years older than me. Right. Uh, Cause I started, I started doing it when I was 34. Um, and that's, so that, that was kind of a, a, a tough part for me to get past is when I get into the laboratories at that young age, when I first started mm-hmm. uh, and convincing the, the people in the laboratory that I actually kind of knew what I was talking about and I could right. assess what their requirements were and I could look at the technical capabilities. Um, and yeah. like I say, as I go back to, you know, what we did at, at Battelle Memorial Institute, we did everything under the sun, whether it was part of our accreditation or not. So, um, it was a really great uh, building point for me to gain knowledge and gain information on how to apply uh, different technologies and things like that so I could go out and do these assessments and so I could do, um, you know, have have that capability. Yeah. Well, I, and I, now it makes sense why Henry wants to come on with you because then we can talk more about that that big picture of assessments because sure. it's something we talked a, a lot about last year. I did have a question with, uh, it was, so with Mettler, I, I didn't catch it on your LinkedIn. I tried to glance over that last night. I thought so I with, put that in there. Oh, no worries. But with Mettler, so how'd you end up there? I know, like for me, I did electronics in high school because auto shop sure. was full. Yep. And I ended up lo- falling in love with electronics, ended up building my own uh, uh, amplifier and stuff. So I kind of mm-hmm. got hooked into electronics, which then in the military led me, you know, I, I did well in electronics and they put me into just yep. like, like you said, you kind of just fall into it. Cause yeah. I didn't, I wasn't like, Hey, you know, I want to be in Cal. They were like, Hey, you did really good in electronics. Go to Cal. Yeah. <laughs> was, was it similar to you or was it just a job that was available? Well, so, so I, I went to college and my degree is basically, uh, I got, uh, uh, electronics engineering technologies, which was a two year degree originally. Um, and, and that kind of draw, they, they pool, you know, Metlersley was pooling who, who can we hire locally? And they pulled people that could do repairs and could understand electronics is the, 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 you know, the balance calibrations basically, you know, you've got mechanical and electrical combined. Uh, and it was kind of, you know, I also grew up a farm boy. So mechanical stuff was always, uh, you know, a forte of mine. So the, the combination of two worked well. Um, and, and that's kind of how it started. They, they called me up. I went in for the interview and, and got hired that day. Um, uh, and like I say, it was a very interesting, very interesting experience with Mettler uh, because they, you know, they, they pack you up as soon as you're hired, they send you off to Switzerland for three and a half months, and then they train you how to do everything that they do in their manufacturing line. Well, they're about um, to get a lot of applications after this episode. Well, I would say, I don't know if they do that anymore, <laughs> but that, you know, 20 years ago, that's what they did. Um, and it was, it was a great experience. It, you know, uh, 19 years old, 18 years old, going to oh, Switzerland, man. you know, uh, having to ride a train every morning, get yourself to a country you've never been to before. It was really interesting. 
sounds fun to fun to me but yeah i'm sure i i mean it's any anytime you're anywhere new that's and you don't quite speak the language and everything sure. it is hard like i was yeah. stationed in japan for a year and that was a mess <laughs> but i definitely feel for you with scale work because i did two years of on-site and man sometimes yeah. with those large scales and bringing in all the weight oof, it's uh, a lot of work it was it was very lucky that i was a laboratory technician and not a a uh uh, industrial technician because the laboratory guys we would carry around maybe uh, maybe 100 kilograms of weight depending on where we're going but most of the time we'd be dealing with you know smaller uh capacity scales 200 gram you know analyticals things like that so you right. sometimes you'd get away with carrying a small case with you and not having to drag this thing around with you all the time yeah i've done a lot of metlers but i i know I, I mean, some of my fellow on-site technicians will also uh, echo me in groaning when we hear Mettler Toledo, because if we're somewhere out there and, and the the customer needs it adjusted now, and it's not okay. something that is allowed to be adjusted by Mettler, sure. it's like, oh, come on. Yeah. It gets rough. Yeah, they, they are definitely proprietary on what they what they handle in that case. And that makes a lot of interesting conversation we don't need to get into on, on balance calibration alone. Oh, you know, yeah. in understanding what you really are doing, if you're a non, uh, you know, mm-hmm. OEM calibration technician and what you're doing for a, a, a customer, you know, especially under the, the flag of accreditation, uh, it, it's a, it's a hard, uh, it's a hard pill to swallow sometime. If you're the independent laboratory going out doing calibrations, you don't have any affiliations with Metro Toledo, uh, mm-hmm. and you can't make those, you know, internal, uh, and, and he goes for Sartorius and, and uh, you know, A&D and a lot of the other manufacturers as well. They, they proprietize those internal uh, calibration uh, metrics so that mm-hmm. they're the only ones that can really do it. Well, I mean, I, I've been out there and I've seen it firsthand where, you know, there's technicians that for years they use the expected weight or mass of, of, sure. uh, of the weight instead of the actuals and make adjustments. And yeah, it's, yep. I, I, I see the reason for it for sure. But I, I'm, all I'm saying is I know there's other onsite technicians that are like, Oh yeah, Mettler Toledo, it's always locked out. <laughs> yep. They, they generally are locked out. That's, that's one of the, uh, I don't know you can look at it as a benefit or also as a, a detractor. It just depends on how you, what, what stance you are. Well, when you know, when you know more in the industry, it makes sense. But you know, yeah. when you're, on site, you're just trying to get things done. You know, that's, it's one of those things, but it's all, it's all in fun, but yeah. So now talking about Sapphire. So again, I mentioned to you before we went live that, uh, a lot of our students brand new to the field proficiency testing. So tell us about it. What, what is a proficiency test? Who is it for? Uh, when, when some of our technicians hear their managers say, Hey, we got a proficiency test coming in. What do they need to know? Well, you know, in, in reality, it's it's a it's a tool uh, that these calibration and testing laboratories can use uh, to I- ensure that um, you know individual properly trains. It's really it ties in with competence, mm-hmm. um, and that's really the the the, the keynote to seventeen oh two five and and some of these other ISO accreditation um, uh, standards. Is that we want to see we want to see that people are competent. We want to be able to sh- we want to be sure that. There's a way for us to determine uh, that, you know, uh, you know, between the scope of accreditation and everything else that goes on, we can establish that they know what they're doing and that we can trust what that is. Uh, and really, proficiency testing is a way to do that. It's not the only way, but it is a good way to do that. And honestly, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of different aspects to it. Um, but what, what it comes down to is that comparison. You, you'll have... Uh, 
there's different types, you know, of ways of doing it. Um, in different disciplines, right? Different so disciplines, different. yes, and different, you know, and they're all handled differently depending on what types of artifacts they are, what types of, um, uh, uh, you know, what level you're at that you could have. Right. You know, you have inner comparisons that, that, that are dealt with on the, you know, NMI level. Um, and a lot of times those are, you know, when we talk about proficiency testing, uh, the proficiency testing companies really don't play in that realm uh, very often where we look at things like, you know, mass, mass standards and they'll, they'll uh, generally like NIST and some of those company, uh, you know, laboratories will generate a ILC or an interlaboratory comparison right. with the primary labs and kind of do those. But we kind of work in that realm in the middle where these these commercial accreditation labs are, are living uh, and, and we provide them with um, examples or we provide them with, with testing artifacts that they can utilize that are, that are similar to what they do uh, on an everyday basis. And then they can use these uh, artifacts to then provide their technicians an avenue for proving their own competence. Um, and, and that's really the key to, I think the proficiency testing activity in how it's used and what you can do with it. Sure. And and I'll go ahead and bring in Henry here now. Hey, Henry. Hey. Welcome to the show. Welcome back yeah. to the show, I should say. Yeah, great to be back. So, so great so to you, listen to Craig there. Yeah. You uh, you and I have talked about the proficiency testing. So in a lot of ways, because um, when I've sat with you in your lab, Henry, and you've talked to me before that you, you know, when I was out there, someone had sent you an artifact, right? Or there was an item that you had, that you were in, in the process of going through a comparison with another lab. And isn't that right? Yeah. So that uh, the, the direct scenario was someone had sent us an instrument because they didn't believe the other lab result. Uh, they looked at the history of this particular load cell and the end result was the data was 1% different than what we showed it to be. The thought process were, was somewhere in that maybe the other lab that did the calibration, the technician, maybe they didn't hook up the sense leads correctly or something on a, 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 a big error that would cause a 1% shift. That's just a huge error because at that time, I think I was chasing an error of uh, 30 parts per million. And then I see this and I'm like, Ryan, I, you, you're not going to believe this. This, this is the difference in this is 1% from us. And if you look at the previous history of the instrument that was sent with it, our numbers agreed much, much better with that previous history. And there's a lot to deduce uh, from this and, and from what Craig said. It's, you know, proficiency test. If you're accredited, you have to comply with what is it? Uh, 772 of the standard section of the ISO IEC 17025 standard, which allows for you know partic participation in proficiency testing or uh, doing ILCs. So the reason I was really excited to introduce you to Craig and have Craig on the program, it's twofold because we wanted to come, Ryan, you and I talk, we wanted to talk about some engage employee engagement and some other things. Uh, though Craig coming in, Craig is the one assessor of the year. You don't win that. You know, it's not a prize that they just say, oh, who's up? Let's just draw a random name. Or maybe they maybe they did with Craig. I don't know. Did, you, <laughs> did, they, did they make the exception for you? No. He, he, oh, Craig hasn't got it yet. Should we just finally <laughs> give it to him? You know? <laughs> that's not how it no, works. That's great. <laughs> I didn't I didn't know that you got that. Congratulations, Craig. Yeah, it was, uh, I guess it would have been the pre-pandemic award of what I'll call it. The uh, Very cool. 2019 would have been that that uh, that year. 
But like as Henry's mentioning, so you went through that process to help a lab, you know, and that's an interlab comparison. And so that is one of the tools that Craig's mentioning. And then a proficiency test is, is a little bit less, I guess you would say personal, or you don't necessarily, you know, have that uh, choice of, of um, communicating. Is there as much communication? I haven't done a proficiency <laughs> test to, to be honest with everybody out there listening. So that's why I have so many questions. <laughs> it's, uh, the ILCs are a little bit different. It depends on how they're de designed. You can have, uh, you know, a, a, a single participant uh, proficiency test. You can have what we call a round robin. You can have a, a which would go, uh, you know, say you have 10 labs. Uh, you start out with an assigned value on an artifact, and that gets travels through those different labs. Mm -hmm. uh, and then each one of those labs presents their, their findings, and you kind of compare everybody together. Uh, it, there's a lot of different avenues that go into it. You could on how they're evaluated, you know, in the process, uh, you, you can have assigned values, you can have established values from the criteria that the different participants provide for you. You can have a lot of different ways of evaluating, you know, how the uh, final results get uh, established and then compared against each individual. Sure. Um, but, but in reality, this, the, the simplest form of a proficiency test is a, uh, you know, take an example of like a, uh, uh, a, a micrometer, something that, you know, people be f familiar with in your science school. Uh, taking a, a micrometer, we'd have, uh, you know, internal here, we'd have established reference value, uh, you know, at different parameters, whether it be, at, you know, maybe a, a tenth of an inch, half an inch, one inch, you know, however you decide to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and then you would pass that around to each laboratory. They would provide you uh, with the uh, results that they get at those same measurement points. Uh, and then you would provide them back with a result of uh, evaluating. We typically use what's called a, an E sub N score, which evaluates the participants values in conjunction with the uncertainty of the uh, participant, as well as the uncertainty of the reference. Oh, uh, right. And it will give you an evaluation of a one, either negative one to one. And as long as your score falls within there, you're considered a pass. Um, there's a lot of other ways to, to evaluate those and we can get into that later, but basically that's the, the crux of the, the basics of proficiency testing. And then, then what they're able to do is then they can provide those results that they get to their A to their like A2LA or ANAB or Perry Johnson or one of the other uh, accrediting bodies are here in, in the States or wherever they are and use that to <clears throat> um, validate, validate compliance with the 772 section of 17025, as well as the individual uh, AB requirements that they might have that are kind of slightly varied depending on where you go. Yeah. yeah. AKA, can you actually measure what you say you can measure? Exactly. Are you able to do it? Pretty much. It closes the gap. Yeah. Right. And, so it helps you troubleshoot, right, Henry? Like you were saying, if yeah, you see a big error, then it's like, okay, so what is it that we're getting wrong? Yeah. And this is where you can get into the ILC portion, right? An interlaboratory comparison. And you can do different things. Uh, you can go out to a reference laboratory, send a device in, bring it back and say, hey, I have engineers here. I have this. We're designing this piece of equipment. Let's do some tests on it. This lab, we trust this lab. They're, they're accredited. That's not enough. Accreditation is just not enough, but they're accredited. Low uncertainties. Uh, we speak to them. They actively participate in PT tests or they're the pivot lab and on some of the tests. They check standards against uh, NIST or another NMI and they do have good processes, statistical process controls, everything else. And you say, okay, uh, Torque's a great example, right? Yeah. A lot of people do not realize the error of the overhung 
moment on when you put an arm on a device. They do not realize the rigidity of that square drive or just a simple the a square drive on a torque on a on a torque device, right? Uh, your arm has a square drive. In order for something to slide into that drive, it has to be less. The diameter needs to be less. It needs to fit in. So there's an additional error in length on that. There's a bending moment. There's friction. There's the as the cable as people put on force weights, the cable stretches. If people use mass weights, they're entirely wrong. They do it. They might correct for local gravity, but then that gravity is not the same when they ship it elsewhere. So mm -hmm. there's all these other things, and you know, I'm seeding some of the things that I'm passionate about here in in this. But the point is, if they do this, or they do an ILC or PT, they can verify and validate their equipment with maybe that technician or several technicians. This is where Craig comes in because you can set. You can set these up in so many different scenarios. You can set them up in one scenario where you say, I'm developing this equipment. I want to make sure I want the answer, right? I want mm -hmm. that lab to send me an artifact and I want to use that artifact to back, you know, to prove out my system. And then once my system's proved out, now I want to, now I want to do more testing and everything else. And eventually I want to do a PT, which is blind. Uh, right. And this is where Craig can come in and say, hey, you don't know what that's going to read. And if it's a good PT, they're going to mess it up. You're going to say, oh, when I apply this, it should read this, this, this. And oh, wow, this device isn't linear. This device is acting weird. And we'll program all kinds of weird values into it to catch those labs that just say, all right, I'll just I'll just do a, you know, draw a line on this. I know what it should be. Report the value. And hopefully, hopefully, you know, Sapphire passes passes my instrument because I, I know darn well what this caliber should do at this, 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 you know, so I see. So are most of the artifacts and the, the equipment that is used for the proficiency test, do they have unique, you know, like, you know, it's off by a certain amount or something like that? Because are, are none of them perfect that are sent out? Yeah, there, there are some that, that are um, there are some that we just allow to naturally drift and we track that drift and we determine where they're at at the time that the unit gets sent out uh and that's that that goes with a lot of like stable artifacts things like that that are addressing but that there are other ones like pipettes you might have three pipettes in a in a kit and and you might have two pipettes that are right on the nose and you might have one that's slightly off um and, and the, you just never know and what that does is it, it it looks at how um maybe a laboratory deals with confirmation bias um right so, you, you know, if you're expecting to get, you know, 100 microliters on a pipette and it doesn't show 100 microliters, but it's real close to 100 microliters, you might just say, eh, we'll just put 100 microliters in there and it'll be just enough to fail in that PT. Uh, and, and it gives you that ability to kind of look at what your process is and, and making sure that, uh, uh, you know, confirmation bias isn't something that you need to address in your laboratory. Yeah, yeah. that's really cool. A lot of think about it, a lot of technicians want to pass instruments. Sure. Right. And a lot of customers expect to pass. So, right. yeah, there's a lot of times even a pressure to make sure something passes. And I, you know, I mentioned it earlier that I did a lot of on sites. And man, I luckily I, I was doing those on sites by the time I was a manager in my career because, you know, I make sure to teach a lot of my guys that you're going to get pressure. When mm -hmm. you start getting out there and something's failing and it's a process that they have to do um, one of those reports, you know, if it's a big manufacturer, you know, they have to do what is it a capital report or 
I can't remember what there's there's NCRs, Kappas, NCRs, Kappas, but you know it can cause a lot of problems. So yeah, I know the pressure. There, there are scenarios, you know, that you bring you bring up the, the large organizations. There are scenarios where I've run across that are might be valuable to people listening today. You know, when it, it balances seems to be a common thread between the two of us. At least we understand what those are. And, and one of the things that I would see a lot of times is when you go into uh, research laboratories. Um, and, and they are using, you know, say a five decimal Mettler Toledo balance, or whatever. And it has an internal cal function, and, and as well, there's always this little weight that's sitting next to uh, a balance, and they'll use that to kind of standardize the balance before they do any of their like testing protocols, any of their sampling when they pull out, you know, so many milligrams of, of solution or whatever. And mistakes that that, that occur with those with those. Uh, technicians they'll go in and they'll run the you know internal cal weight and then they just start testing it um and they don't realize that you know maybe the 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 laboratory uses that external cal weight to then verify the balance before they do the work and they never even test that internal cal weight and that internal cal weight could be off 100 miles by the time they go to use it and then they'll they'll provide them with the certificate says that they were out of tolerance as found and then and then you hand that off to the QA director at a pharmaceutical company and you're going to create a firestorm okay. uh, because then they go back and they do a check with the standardized weight that they have. And they say, well, our standardized weight still has the same value as it did through all of our testing protocols that we, before we do any of our sampling. And then you, you know, like, so you, you create a big issue with, you know, uh, with that process and, 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 having that ability to understand that maybe you need to find out exactly how those users handle that weight, handle those balances before you do a calibration is, is key. And, and a lot of that kind of falls into what we're talking about here is, is when we send, you know, artifacts to, to a, uh, a, a, a laboratory that wants to do it, they, they have a preconceived notion of how they want to do it. And in reality, we want them to follow their own procedures. We don't, we don't provide them with a procedure, say, do step A, B, C, D. We want you to follow your procedures and provide me with an end result. Because what that's going to do is it also validates what their procedure is, as well as, you know, what, what we're doing on our end. So, so you may have different methods of doing certain things, you know, between comp or between cow labs when we're doing these proficiency tests and, you know, one may do an extra step and one may do something a little bit differently and they may get a, bit, a little bit different result. Mm -hmm. And one of them may be more uh, in line with what we do and, and they, they'll pass and they won't. And it's kind of a, a way for them to kind of look at that and say, you know, we, we need to make sure we're doing exactly what we should be doing based on, you know, what the expected result would be. So, um, Proficient testing in a lot of ways, it does a lot of different things. It can confirm, uh, you know, training. It can confirm, uh, you know, stability of your own references. It can confirm, uh, you know, val some validation. I won't say all validation, but it can confirm, you know, that your method is appropriate. Um, th there can be a lot of different ways of, of if you find a mistake or if you pass those those proficiency tests of, of what you can garner from th that, that knowledge uh, of getting that either passing result or negative result. Yeah, you just bought a new new setup. You're getting into a new area, and you're like, "Are we doing this right?" Sure. Yeah, exactly. I just bought a new force device from Henry, and you're like, "Did we set this up right?" We're we're uh, we we're partnering with Sapphire here to launch around January a, a new service for ILC 
or a PT. And if it's a PT, then then Sapphire is going to crunch some of the data. And this is for the people that, as we we're talking about, that want to validate their process and they have options now. They don't have to participate in the PT. They can do an ILC, mm-hmm. back calculate, see if there's problems between texts, uh, do repeatability between R&Rs between the texts, do, do all of that uh, stuff with an artifact of you know relatively known uh, nothing's known for sure in this world, uh, right? Or, or or in measurement field, but with uh, with a relatively known device that that they can use uh, back. And then we're also uh, partnering with uh, Sapphire if somebody wants to satisfy that requirement and they want to get an artifact and they want the blind PT, where you send the artifact out, they report the results, the data goes to Craig. the The value proposition of this one is it's an immediate. Right. You don't have to wait in the line. You don't have to wait in the in the queue. And we're doing the cal immediately. So any artifact has drift. So you could be a year into the queue before it's going back to the pivot lab, depending on the scenarios and how it's testing and, and how the PT set up with this one. It's a it's a more direct. We've taken out almost all of the stability by saying, hey, there's you have a two to three week window here. We will calibrate the device before it goes out. We're not just going to pull something calibrated off the shelf. We'll calibrate it directly uh, right before it goes out, send it to you, and then the drift will be minimized. Uh, And that's part of your uncertainty contribution as well when you're dealing with your own internal standards and drift and everything else. I did have a question for Craig, though. So on uh, mass weights, do you you put the sticker on the top or the bottom of the weight? Well, uh, that that's a funny that, that came out. I think that was on one of the postings on Facebook. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> the density of the stickers is very much different from the density of the of the mass material. So you, you know, maybe you need to effectively evaluate that. Um, one of the funny things when you say that though is, is when I uh, was in my internal lab, I used to to test a laboratory. I used to take a sharpie, and I would write on the bottom test. In, in Sharpie, just to see if a laboratory would catch that there's, you know, a Sharpie written on the bottom of it. And if they if they cleaned it off and made a note of it beforehand and then let me know and then did the test, then I would be okay with using them again in future. If they didn't, I just threw their information in the trash can and I never talked to them again. <laughs> that's, nice. that's an interesting thing because by rights, if they're following the standard, they should give you the call and say, hey, do you know this yep. artifact has... Do you still need the as received? Exactly. And the recommended recommended practices, we clean it and give you the as return. Yeah. Yep. Because yep. you've been using this. And yep. there's something to be said for that as received data, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we've heard stories. We've heard stories from people that that it failed, an instrument fails. So then they send it in a week later. Yeah. Right? <laughs> after after a lab has adjusted, adjusted yep. it. And uh I don't know where we want to go with this. There's a lot of a lot of places to go. There's an engagement thing here, big time, uh, with I- employees uh, as far as your your technicians and engagement and and where systems go and and something that uh, I think Craig has seen a lot of in in speaking with him. And you know, no matter what you do, you throw you buy the best equipment. You have your procedures, your processes, you hire the best consultants, you do everything right. And at the end of the day, even if things are automated, you still have to rely on people. People Mm -hmm. are going to receive things, at least for now. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be electric transport, but someone's going to go pick it out. Somebody's going to unpack it. 
right? They're going to evaluate it. They're going to call the customer. In the case of the Sharpie, they should be calling the customer and, and talking about it. <laughs> I love and that one, by the way. If they're an engaged workforce, all these things are going to happen. The probability of them happening is going to be higher, right? It's not, we're, we're never 100%. There's always errors. Everybody's always going to make mistakes. But those labs that have the engaged workforce, they, of course, you should have the equipment, the uncertainties, and everything else. But so many labs fail to, to get these things right as far as engagement goes. And if you, if you think about engagement um, and some other things with it, you know, think about things, uh, what, a, what an engaged employee would have. You know, they would look for given opportunities to improve organizational performance. They'd be positive about the job and the organization. Uh, they believe in the organization, uh, work actively to make things better right treats others with respect can be rely on you can hand the you know send them the instrument always rely on them i know many labs have that person oh here's here's this tech we'll just send everything to get them oh the pt's coming in send them to our best tech right and then all these other people are making measurements too and they're ignored um you know they, they engage employee they you know they see the bigger picture and things and then they always keep up to date with developments and this leads back to the calibration school right if they're continuing the education, if the company is in a cycle of continuous improvement. I know for us, and I'm sure Craig and Ryan, I know you're the same way, but every year we're better. You know, we make a, we make a machine tomorrow, right? And it's gonna be better than the machine we made 10 years ago. That's not always the case with organizations. You have, I mean, we all can name them, right? And you have equipment that people go back on and I'm one of them. I, uh, Craig earlier was, was talking about uh, some multimeters uh, and everything else. I love the Schlumberger, or they called it the Solatron. It's not made anymore. You can't get it. It was perfect for our field. Just absolutely perfect, perfect for ratio metric measurements. That's gone, right? But there are those organizations where some people do go back and say, hey, if we would have bought this 20-year-old or 30-year-old with tubes or whatever, it's a much better product than what's made today. And that's right. sad. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're onto something. I mean, I, we, I talk a lot about employee morale type things because we focus with technicians a lot of times, you know, I have a lot of interaction with technicians and Craig, I don't know what you've seen over your time over because as an independent person going into some of these labs, I'm sure you have similar experiences that I do that you see the neglect you see, sure. like Henry's talking about, there are technicians that, Hey, I guess my place in this, in this facility is to always do the, 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 pressure gauges. I guess that's what I'll always do, you know, and when we're talking about continuous improvement, we're talking about proficiency testing, interlab comparisons, always trying to do better. Mm. You know, it, it drew me back to, I was writing an article, um, talking about training and I found a, an article by, uh, Keith Bevan. I'm not familiar with him. I don't know if you guys know him, but it was in quality magazine and it was talking about how a lot of places are relying on, on the job training that doesn't happen. And they're, mm. and almost all of them are spending less than 10% of their overall training budget on metrology related training, if they have a training budget at all. And so when we're talking about employee morale, they feel that they feel like, okay, I'm here to work and I'm never going to get trained. Or I've been to places that they have training on the schedule every month and it never happens, you know, and that will affect the morale. And it has, I've seen it personally. I don't know what you've seen there, Craig, have you? 
Well, well, I think one of the operative words that you just said there is that you said, well, I, I guess I'll just be the, the guy that does pressure. I guess I'll just be this individual, that individual. And, and, and what I, what I can talk to from my own personal experiences, um, one of the reasons why I am an assessor today is because, um, of, some of this same stuff that we're discussing about employee engagement and, and things like that in, in my workplaces. And I was at a time uh, where, you know, I would go, I went probably five, six, seven years without knowing what the expectations were of what I was to do, you know, so nobody came through and said, well, here's, here's your job. Here's your roles this is what we expect to do. This is what we expect to get out of you. And this is where, you know, if you want to do X, Y, Z, uh, this is where you can, you know, go to, this is how you can grow. This is how you can do this. If employees know, uh, one, what's expected of them and two, what it takes to get to the next level, you're going to quickly weed out the people who just want to collect the paycheck mm-hmm. and the people who want to, uh, you know, moved to the next level to, to progress and, and try to uh, improve upon themselves as much as improve upon what goes on in the laboratory. And, and what I see so many times is that those two, uh, those two functional communication aspects are not, are not conveyed at all between management and technicians. It, it's mm-hmm. and part of the, part of the, the reason I, I feel is that, there are not many, very many calibration tech, calibration laboratories out there that are fiscally responsible enough to allow themselves to key on training as a core aspect of what they do on their everyday jobs. Mm-hmm. Most of them are worried about, well, I've got to pay paychecks. I've got to pay, uh, you know, uh, benefits, all these other things. And this is what we need to do to achieve that. And, and, and let, until we achieve that, we don't get a chance to look at anything else that goes on. There might be stuff that, that has to be addressed in, you know, requirements for, for either 17025 or some other, you know, accreditation related items. Uh, but those in a lot of cases are just, you know, bullet points to hit to say, yeah, we're, we're looking into it. Here's the reason why we can't do it. Or here's a re- what we've done to fulfill those. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't see a lot of, uh, uh, a lot. I don't see it as a mainstay within within calibration where laboratories are focused on training, employee expectations, and, and just the engagement in general that you're you're, you're discussing here. And, and like I say, I think a lot of that is to understand uh, in the first step in any of it is understanding what the expectations are. You know what what you want your technicians to know what you want them to do, and if you don't know what you want them to do, they're just guessing. And if they're just guessing, most of the time they're guessing wrong. And at that point, you, you're going to potentially create, uh, a, you know, a worse situation that you have before. You're going to have people who just sit there and say, well, I did my 10 calibration for the day. I'm done. Uh, you know, I'm not going to do anything more. And, and I've, I've had that direct experience where, you know, we had uh, individuals in laboratories that just said, well, I, you know, I, I did my job for uh, or collected my, you know, recovered my costs for the day. So I don't need to do anything more. Yeah. You know, and that's that's unfortunately the probably the majority of, of what's out there. You and know, how many labs have you assessed now? How many labs have you been to? Correct? Over ten years. Um, I'm going. I'm going into my tenth year this year. I do about thirty five to forty a year, so do about three hundred plus assessments. So if you don't believe us at the school and what we've been saying. Now here's Craig telling you from experience <laughs> out there for ten years that it is a widespread issue. Yes. Yep. And companies think they can throw money at it, right? They yep. can 
do other things. They have people that just show up. Hey, as long as you get these 10 gauges out, as long as you calibrate these balances, but how many people accurately convey? And we were guilty about this for a while. It's, it's an ongoing, it's, it's more about continuous improvement ongoing. So now someone out there listening to this today might go and say, well, how do I do this? What do I do? Well, how do you, how do you become better? You know, small incremental change leads to gigantic. If you just change, what is it? It's if you just change 1% um, per week or something, you, you'll be tw over twice as good uh, and just little things, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. And there's things. So focus on the culture, the values, yeah. uh, mission, right? Um, vision, mission, purpose. What's the purpose? Uh, you know, forever, we sit in here in metrology, people go, what do you do? Da, da, da. And I started saying, hey, we make the world a safer place. Oh, what's that mean? Mm -hmm. Right? That's the purpose. If, if you have a nine to five tech that's just passing instruments and spreading risk and everything else, bad things happen to people you love or can happen. There's an increased probability. So we were talking about Dilip earlier. He uses the scenario uh, tires. Sure. Right. You accept or reject a tire. If it goes on a bicycle and it's, a, you know, some kid on a bicycle, what's the real risk that if the tire fails or something, some scratches, some things, there is a risk of some serious injury, but not nearly the risk that if those tires are on a 18 wheeler heading down the highway at 75 miles an hour, not nearly as much as if it's if it's, you know, tires are on a motorcycle right? Heading down the highway at 90 miles per hour, because not many people that uh, I'm making an assumption, assumption here, not many people that have these really fast bikes, just drive, just uh, ride them at the uh, recommended speed limit. So are you um, talking from experience there? No, I don't. I don't have one. But no, it's and then procedures, like continually looking at the procedures and refining them. I know if, if people say, you know, you want to hold people accountable to, for something, have the procedures. It's something we're, we're still ongoing and we're working on and we're not where I want to be and I'm frustrated, but you got to look at the bigger picture and say, hey, we got to have all this stuff, right? We want to have a culture change doesn't just happen overnight. You can't just, you know, snap your fingers and, and boom, it happens. You have to work at it. You have to invest at it. It's not a shiny object that you can just say, okay, now we're going to do this. We're going to have a big meeting and everything's going to be better. No, it's, it's, it's constantly holding people to your uh, values and your, um, your core values, so to speak. Because we, you know, we have our own core values and one of them is a positive customer experience. Right. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have that, you know, safety's safety's in there. Uh, there's just so many different things uh, you can talk about when you talk about this. But if somebody doesn't, if you have employees that do not align, you sit down with the team and they don't align with your core values, that's bad. We've gotten rid of people that haven't aligned with the values. It's it's it takes um, and the procedures and everything else. If you have these together and there's a important concept. It takes the emotion out of things, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Because you can basically say, how does this align with the positive customer experience? How does this align with teamwork, right? And so you're aligning back to the values and it, it takes completely, instead of saying, hey, you did this wrong, blah, 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 blah. It just aligns it, you know, you say, you have a better culture. And that's what Craig's running into. And that's what we all strive to be better. And mm -hmm. there's there's some statistics. I don't know how much they hold up now with after the uh, as we're going through a pandemic. But prior to the pandemic, 
you could go almost any decade, you could go and look at for the last, what, four or five, and 70% of people, when they leave a company, leave because of management. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And as management and as the people paying the bills, what does it cost you when you, A, hire the wrong person, right? How much? You have the training, you have everything else, you have the morale, bringing everybody else down if it's not the right person, and then you keep them all and give them a third, fourth, fifth chance. What does it cost you to leave that, have that person hang around the organization, mm-hmm. right? And um, the other part of this is, drawing a blank here. So, uh, <laughs> well, I, w- I wanted to mention yeah, yeah. the one thing that can't be forgotten in all of this, when we're talking about the, you know, those, those technicians that only do this, only do that, you know, the, the ones that aren't getting the training or whatever, the people that bear the brunt of a lot of this is those that are your, your superstars in the, the lab that then everything falls on their shoulders. Yeah. You know, Hey, this, this thing is super important, mm-hmm. but there's only one person that can do it. Hey, let's call this one person back. Hey, this one person can't take vacation this week because of this one cow, you know? And, and that's the other thing that the lack of training is, is, you know, we talk about employee morale. That means you're good guys too. When you're losing good people, it's, it's also because of that. Yeah. And when you lose them, that's what I wanted to say. What's, what's the cost? How much does it cost to bring someone else, retrain them, go through the whole process? You can use testing, you can use all types of things, but all you do is increase the probability that you're making the right hire. There's still, I think in any given situation, there's still a 10 to 20% chance if you do the, you know, there's probably work that contradicts this, but there's, you bring somebody new in, there's still a 10 to 20% chance that they may not last. Oh yeah. And that's you doing all the right things. I think the studies say it's about 50-50 if you're just bringing them in and and doing it just a pretty non, you know, your formal interview and not asking the right questions and everything else. And that's another thing uh, we started doing recently, and we're not great at it yet, but we will be, is when you start bringing people in, start asking them where they want to be in five years and developing the plan. It's part of it's in one of our procedure. Craig won't audit it when he, if he ever comes in to, uh, you know, uh, as a, as an assessment, he's not going to audit that. You know, for, you know, for 10 years, Henry's been saying this, but I, I think he's heard, you know, he's like, we don't want Craig coming in here because he's going to give us a bunch of deficiencies. No, I want that. I, I, <laughs> I welcome, I welcome, I welcome that because it makes you better. So I, I want somebody that's, I want someone that's fair. I don't want someone that's going to yeah. give us 40 deficiencies because we spelled because uh, someone didn't, uh, you know, they spelled meter M-E-T-E-R instead of M-E-T-R-E because the spell check said corrected and, you know, it got put mm-hmm. in a document. I don't, I, you know, it, it, that's an important thing to get everything right, but I don't want a deficiency on on, on that. I want, I want deficiency on the processes and I want someone to come in and say, how can, can we make you better? We've had Harry Moody come in a few times. We didn't even know some things about the Agilent that we were using. I I was like, he's like, are you doing this? And I said, no, we're not doing that. He's like, show me it doesn't make a difference. So we ran tests um, mm. all day to show, oh, we're only reporting to the fifth decimal. This is out at the seventh resolution uh, for the uncertainty of everything is at the fifth for those that know. So if, so if I have an uncertainty contribute for resolution at the fifth decimal and what Harry Moody is, is telling us, we proved to be at the seventh decimal. Harry just said, okay, just change your, it'd be good recommended practice. And we said, thank you. We're going to, we're going to consistently do this now because mm-hmm. we don't want it to come into the sixth decimal place, right? We don't want it where it can flip that 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 fifth digit. 
uh, we're okay with it staying at the seventh, but we don't want that encroaching in. And that's the part of where you get to some statistical process controls and, and everything else that a lot of labs can be better with. Some labs are absolutely fantastic with it. Uh, we talked about that before, if people want to go back on that. And and Ryan had Jeff Gust on, and they talk about it. And Fluke just you know, blows my mind with the amount of SPC they do. And I'm yeah. sure other other companies do it as well. I just it, Jeff just talked about it and was on here. If people want to go back and listen to that one, that was his. Season his, one. Yeah. A lot of them should probably. Uh, you, yeah. you, you run into a lot of laboratories that do SPC charting, but then they don't establish any criteria for how they're evaluated. Which, and they'll hand you these documents and say, so here, here's our SPC charting for all the stuff that we do. And I go, well, how do you know whether you are in control or out of control? Oh, uh, I struggle with that one too. That's uh, so you're, you, you claim you're in, I struggle with uncertainties in general in industry. Cause I think a lot of them are way too low. Cause do you have artifacts that are good enough? I mean, you go to NIST on their dimensional machines. You used to listen to Ted Doran talk and they have what 61 artifacts that they can pull and test. And yeah. then they started thinking about, like, hey, let's do uncertainty based on some of these 61 artifacts and drift. And, you know, not every lab has that, you know, that can get to the end sure. degree. But other labs are, are claiming dimensional measurements that are pretty darn close. And that's how do they get there? You, know? you want to mention what SBC is for our statistical people. process control. There you go. But yeah, so it's it's how do you get sometimes you don't have an artifact that's good enough. Uh, and then you also have drift. So the best artifacts, and I think we, Craig can back me up on this one, I hope, is, are the, is, is really not the most linear artifact or anything else. The best artifact is the stable artifact. The mm -hmm. one that is going to, you're going to put this in a machine today, you're going to put it in next week, and it's going to read the same thing. It's not going to be, it's not going to be the one that calibrates the absolute best at the time of calibration and then three months later you it still calibrates really well but it's drifted out and that's uh that's an interesting uh dynamic if you start thinking about equipment and drift a lot of people do not account for that in their uncertainty budgets which drives me nuts because I'll, I'll go look at a scope and i'll see or they'll send equipment into us and they'll claim they'll claim the same thing on their scope as their accuracy of the device and then when we we call it out of tolerance what's they don't account for the drift it drifts the stability we call it out of tolerance and adjust it back in what's happening and when is it going out of tolerance that's mm -hmm. always uh you know and how are they able to continually keep claiming that who's looking at it again accreditation is good uh but it's only a snapshot and we're we're, we're getting into the bigger picture on the engage you know that engagement piece of having the culture where they're going to spot things, they're going to check things, they're going to question things, they're going to make the procedure better, they're going to care, they're going to notice when a customer sends in a device and somebody has the wording wrong, so they call the customer and ask them if they're sure that that's what they meant on their purchase order, that mm -hmm. do you really want this? The last time we did it this way, your PO states this, the salesperson did this, however, we're still checking because we've, we have a 10-year history on this device and this deviates from it pretty drastically. Right. And that's not going to happen with a lot of your uh, process. That's going to happen with that engaged workforce and the employee that that knows uh, or team member. Right? I hate the word employee. It's, you know, we're all a freaking team. We work together to do good things, uh, try to do great things. And uh, that's the that's the goal. Right. So how every day. So how do things work with like um 
because I had had the natural question of like doing pressure gauges. How does that type of stuff work with the different altitudes and everything? It just depends on your method in most cases. Um, you know, if you're doing dead weight calibrations, it's going to be, you know, clearly dependent on, on altitude and, and your, your, uh, gravitational effects and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, you know, your reference, depending on if you're making references to, you know, that atmosphere as well, you know, how, how your comparisons are made in that respect, how accurate is your atmospheric, you know, uh, comparisons, uh, you know, th those are all things that kind of tie it. It just depends on the method, whether you're talking about gauge pressure, absolute pressure, uh, differential pressure, depending on what you, what you work with, uh, and, and your methods as well, all will have determination on whether or not altitude is an effect, you know, gotcha. if you're different. Uh, and we're a mile area. high here. So sure. <laughs> yeah. So pressure stuff, depending on, you know, if you got a, a, a laboratory that does uh, dead weight comparisons, you're gonna have to count for those local gravitational effects as well as, anything that's you know dealing with with altitude corrections things like that right yeah and i also wanted to mention henry like you were mentioning accreditation is one step and that's that's definitely why at the school we're also heading down that road of of checking the you know the individual technician's ability to do those things that you state you know mm -hmm. because you're you're right i mean a lab could do everything right when craig shows up you know and and they could give him the right technicians and everything like that. But when day to day is happening, you know, is, is that the case? That's, yeah. that's what I've always seen problems with as well. And, and Craig's a good guy, but I, I don't think he's going to go through a, yeah, a 230 page scope and, and give it everything that it needs to the, the go over, right, Craig, in a, in a few days. Yeah, in, in most cases, uh, unless you're a brand new laboratory, um, you know, we, we look at a scope of accreditation. And if you've been, depending on the number of, 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 of times you've been assessed, we kind of mm. gauge what we need to look at in a lot of cases. We'll, we'll skim through them. We'll, we'll, part of our process is, is uh, um, that we uh, are sampling. We, you know, we can't, I can't look at, uh, you know, 500 uncertainty budgets in a, in a, you know, if I have 22 hours or 28 hours to look at a laboratory and assess what it does. Uh, so we'll, we'll take samples of things. We'll look at, well, you know, what, what a current calibration certificate for a particular artifact might've been. We'll go back and I'll say, okay, let me look at that uncertainty budget. It's been established for, you know, a number of years. And I'll look and say, well, did they look at drift? Did, did they account for, uh, either the specification of the standard or do they actually evaluate what the drift between calibrations is? Did they look and they, they establish what uh, the current uncertainties were provided? Because a lot of times they'll change providers in between processes. So um, a lot of the things that, that, that I'll go through, yeah, in, in a laboratory that is, is established, has been accredited a number of times, we don't necessarily have the time to go through every single line item of uncertainty. What we'll go through, what we typically do, we go through and say, does this look, you know, acceptable? And then, like I say, we'll sample stuff from here, there on out and, and make sure that things are uh, appropriately being addressed as they are through the year. Um, sure. The only time that we really have to go through every single individual line is when we have a, either a brand new laboratory or if we have a laboratory that, you know, is making uh, significant changes. If they come in with a scope of accreditation that it's 20 pages long and 10 pages are highlighted. You know, we're, we're spending a lot more time looking at the uncertainty budgets for those highlighted areas than we would be for, for areas that are, um, you know, well-established and well-controlled. For sure. 
that you well, think are well established. We, we think yeah, we, we make <laughs> we, we make some assumptions, I guess, going in, right? So when you become an assessor, how do they train you to have those magic the magic touch where you find the one document that's incorrect out of? Uh, I don't know. I think it's something. I think there's something you know uh, blind that's in, in, in you know in imported to you when you receive the uh the contract to become the assessor is that all of a sudden you just have this magic ability to reach into a filing cabinet or to point to something on a screen and go show me this one or show me that one and it ends up and being it like shots your finger exactly like electric yeah. pulse it's like uh, yeah uh, what's the what's the stick the 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 stick where you find water you know the old school way with the, oh the yeah what, oh, what do they call that a rod a divining rod divining rod yeah it's like the divining rod for metrology you, know, you, divining you, you grab a hold of a caliper and if it draws you towards something then it <laughs> well, I, I, oh, I think awesome. you have some bias uh based on uh, i don't know it's knowledge right so one lab you're doing random sampling and in one lab you find they're not doing the masses properly yeah. right I'm willing to bet that the next lab that you walk into, you're like, man, I just, I just walked into here and let me see if they're doing the mass properly, you know, the yeah. additive or, you know, you, you and I talked though, I want to, I want you to explain this to people because I think it'll be good that root some square versus additive versus other thing, but you find it. And then you're like walk into the next laboratory and you peek again. And then you find they have the same error. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm starting to form an opinion that a lot of these labs are doing this wrong. This is something, and I, I hope you take, I, I know you, Craig, do, but I hope the other assessors take the attitude. Yeah. This is something that I can help make the world better by giving the deficiency and, and helping the labs correct these measurements. The labs don't like it at all because they have a lot of work to do. You know, many of them don't like it. It's a lot of work to correct it. Though at the end, they should accept it because it makes them better. You're yeah. not asking them to go out and spend millions and millions of dollars. You're just saying, hey, the, here's another method, um, yeah. the proper method to do that. And it, with that, do you want to explain on the, the what, what you some, sometimes see with the masses and the RSS and additive and Oh, you're talking about, you know, when you have, uh, if you're, if you're dealing with, you know, this goes with balances as well, when you're talking about making your comparisons, if you don't have, usually mass, it's not as big of a deal, because usually you're doing, you know, a mass to mass comparison. So you got a one kilogram versus a one kilogram, we don't have to worry about uh, uncertainties where we talk about correlated and uncorrelated uncertainties. Um, but when you do more along lines like balances and scales and say when you, you go, well, I need to put uh, 140 grams on a scale and you take 100 gram and 220 grams, you know, how do you evaluate the uncertainty of those uh, each one of those individual values uh, on the balance itself when you're doing that work? Because you kind of goes in the same thing with when you're doing uh, force calibrations on, yep. on like a torque transducer or you're doing it with the, uh, you know, some other type of, you know, if you do hanging weights for a force gauge of some kind, um, those, those weights are, are the, uh, uncertainties that are related to those are, uh, uncorrelated to one another, meaning that, that it has a value established with the set uncertainty and so does the next weight. And so does the ne next weight. And what we have to be able to do is to establish those 
are those are those a, a component that are RSS in the value, or are those a component that are additive to the uncertainty? And generally, with speaking, when we're talking about weights and we're talking about physical artifacts, where we have more than one artifact added into either a balance or a force gauge or something like that, the uncertainties become an additive to the overall capacity of what that uh, expanded uncertainty is going to be in the end. A lot of people go through and they say, "Oh, well, I've got." two 10 gram weights and a hundred gram weight, I'm going to RSS all these weights together. And then you end up with an uncertainty slightly bigger than the hundred gram uh, weight uncertainty. And then you're, you're missing how the, how the other effect or how the effect of the established value for the other 10 gram, the other, other 10 gram weight are, are, are affecting what you do. And those can be significant contributors in, 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 in any analysis that you do. Um, and really what I always point people to, and, and what I've been having trouble with is going into separate laboratories and saying, okay, when you know Henry's talking about doing things the right way, um, both the ASTM and the uh, uh, the European uh, Euromet documents for balances, which I think the the ASTM was just published recently within the last last year at least the eight nine eight and then the uh, Euromet CG eighteen, which are a relationship to calibrating uh, automatic weighing devices. Uh, and that would be your typical, you know, Mettler Toledo balances, Sartorius balance, things like that. In there, they talk about uh, the methods used uh, to, to calibrate these balances. And, and the ASTM and the Euromet documents have been, uh, uh, what's the term I want to use, have been uh, unionized. I won't say unionized, but they've been mirrored. They're both basically the same thing with some basic uh, differences. And you go in most laboratories that are independent outside of your Metler Toledo's, outside of your Sartorius's and Rice Lakes, things like that. And they, they are following an internal procedure that's generally documented after like uh, uh, a HB Handbook 44, like setup. Just updated. Or, Handbook yeah. 44 just updated. Yeah. November. What they do is they'll just, they'll come up with their own, their own calibration method and they don't establish any relationship to that ASTM or that, uh, that Euromet. And to be honest with you, sometimes they'll hit it, you know, they'll get it on, they'll, they'll get one on the money. They'll get one, either repeatability might be right in line or eccentricity might be in the line, however they determine what they're going to do, but they don't, uh, they don't understand that um, there, there are, are, are these methods out there for them that can make their lives easier to use those as, as a tool you know, to get them in, in position to be doing the right thing. And that's, you know, kind of, I think Henry's getting doing the right thing, following mm -hmm. what's been expected. Consensus documents are as close to what you're going to do and as the right thing metrologies are going to have. Um, and, and, and a lot of these laboratories don't necessarily follow those consensus documents. Uh, they'll come up with their own methods and we can go it's down the whole rabbit hole of validation. Oh, yeah. yeah because, that Wild West we always talk about. Yeah. Yep. Because the, the document does, ah, we know better. We can do this. But. Well, you know, in, in the unfortunate part, I don't want to say unfortunate part, it's very flexible. 17025 uh, is a very much a document what you do, validate what you do, provide evidence that, that it meets what your customers are requiring you to do, and you can be accredited. Oh, you're, um, you're, you're killing me here because I want to go into TAR. You know, you know where I want to go. I know. Well, hey, you know, and I'm, I'm with you. I'm on the same page with you at TAR, TAR for sure. But, but you know, un the unfortunate status is, is that, you know, laboratories, when you go into different areas, if I go into a laboratory that's calibrating gauge blocks and they have, they say, oh, we do up to four inches on gauge blocks, but our uncertainty is stated at, say, 10 micro inches. I'm not going to evaluate the same way necessarily that a laboratory that comes and says, well, I do with 2.2 micro inches in the same range. 
right. that may not seem like much for for anything, but but they you're going to evaluate them a little bit differently. You're going to look at how the impacts of those things are because they're considering different things than what a laboratory that's considering two point two microchips is at at say one inch. So so I think there's a lot of different things when we look at them from the perspective of, of an assessor that that uh, doing things the right way is also establishing you know how what your perspective is. Okay, because the right way is going to define is going to be defined by what you're doing in, in some aspects. So you got to look a little, you got to be a little bit flexible in those aspects. So yeah. what's uh what's assessing like here post pandemic? Or I I know the pandemic and the variants are yeah. coming around. Are are you guys still doing remote assessments? Or are you actually going out and about? These um, we can go out and about. It's usually an agreement between the laboratory and and, and the assessor. Um, and typically, you know, we, we just decide, you know, what's up. I, I just had one a couple of weeks ago that was going to be on site and then last minute things changed and we had to switch it to a remote. Um, so I've been doing a lot of remotes myself. Uh, I know assessors, um, uh, Mr. Keep, he, he does them all the time. He, he goes out and, and flies, uh, all over the world currently still. Uh, cool. doing assessments. So it just depends on your level of comfort and what the comfort of the laboratory is as well. And, and if you can uh, meet whatever local, you know, requirements might be for vaccination, all that kind of stuff, then, then uh, they allow you to go out. But uh, who knows, that could be changing. I don't know. Sure. You mean so what immunization? Does, <laughs> what would you recommend to someone that... Uh, Maybe after after hearing some of the things that you've talked about or are interested in becoming an assessor, what are the best steps? How how could someone do that? Well, I mean, usually um, usually you know somebody, you know, or somebody can vouch for you know what your knowledge is. Uh, a lot of times, you know, any of the crediting bodies that are going to want to uh, bring somebody in, it, 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 you're going to want to know a little bit about those individuals. So, like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you know somebody that's an assessor, if you know somebody within different organizations, it's always good to contact them and, and find out, you know, what certain protocols might be. Um, I was very lucky because, you know, Dillip's got a huge ton, a lot of clout in, in with, with HLA. You're good. You're going to. Yeah. So, you know, he, he, he basically, <laughs> he basically said, Hey, we need to get him in. And, and they, they, you know, opened the door for me. And, and hopefully I, I say, hopefully I've, I've, uh, uh, I, I've come to the, met the expectations of both the Dillip and A2LA, uh, but uh, you know sometimes it, it just like we you know talk about everything else, it's not always a perfect fit for everybody. Um, you've got to be flexible. One of the things that I learned early on when I started doing this is you know you go into this, especially at, at the age I was, I was like I know everything, I, I know it all. It's easy, I can do this, right? And you go in your first assessment, and you go, oh crap, I don't, re- I don't, I don't. I don't know everything. And there's different ways. You, you realize that there's different ways to look at every single aspect of what's out there. And what you have to be able to do is be flexible enough to look at what they're doing in a laboratory and say, okay, does this meet the requirements 17025? And, and a lot of times you, there's a full spectrum of, of ways that you can comply and do different things to meet requirements. And and I feel like after 10 years of this, that I, I've that's one of the things that I, I've garnered from this is being able to be flexible, look at what's there and say, okay, what do we need to make any changes to this or, or, or are there, do they meet the requirements based on what I see in front of me? Um, you know, in, in a, a really good example of one that I was, I was dealing with recently was, you know, most of the crediting bodies want 
most of the accrediting bodies want to have a um, references to, you know, what their certificate is and any kind of uh, either website or any kind of ad that you might have that says, hey, we're accredited, you know. And uh, one of the things that, you know, I, I looked at a laboratory who had, you know, all the information needed to be there, except they did not state what their, their certificate number was, but they did have a link that you could click on that would bring up their current certificate from the AB. And, you know, I looked at that and I said, you know, to me, that that looks good. Uh, any user that goes up can click on that link and they can see where exactly that information comes from. Now, if the link wasn't correct and it went somewhere else and gave it different information, would have been a problem. But uh, but in that case there, you know, I, I even after 10 years, I, I kind of looked at it and said, well, this is something new I haven't seen before. And I, I feel like this is going to be something that would meet the requirements because, you know, maybe it doesn't explicitly state the certain number, but it does give you the certain number once you click on that little hyperlink. You know, you so it's... Hmm? Yeah, you have a tough job because the it, standards don't... contentious. The standards don't always get it right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can't audit to the intent of the standard, right? Mm-hmm. So a word like should, well, you know, you should sure. do this before you do that. And then the, the organization says, hey, it's not a shell. I don't have yeah. to do it. If and that 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 stuff would drive me nuts, right? Because yeah. now you're in an organization, the intent of the standard is this, they know the intent of the standard, mm-hmm. and yet they're just, nope, don't want to do it, adds 10 minutes time, adds 15 minutes time per, per calibration, we'll just, we'll, we won't do it. And that yeah. would drive me crazy. Right. I'd be like, no, the intent is this. We're, I'm auditing you to this standard. This is the intent. And you can't win. Yeah. Right. And, you can suggest, and, but you can't win. And, and it's made uh, the new the new revision to the standard has made it much more difficult because you're mm-hmm. every, so many things are now risk based. You know, you can you can say, well, you know, this is a level of risk we're going to accept. Here's all the plans that we put in play to mitigate it. And that's why we're not going to necessarily follow this to, you know, exactly what it documents here. You know, it, it, the risk part of it makes our jobs a lot more difficult, um, mainly for laboratories that want to dip their feet into that realm of risk. You know, a lot of people just do a basic analysis of risk and say, we're going to keep what we had from our 20, you know, 2005 version of what our quality manual was and we're going to you know, add this in as a secondary protocol. Uh, and then they, you know, address it where the areas might need it, you know, but they don't necessarily spread it out uh, as as fluently as maybe other labs do where they've said, okay, now we can use this as a tool to uh, either, you know, mitigate some of the things that we were doing before, you know, in or we can use it as a tool to uh, reduce the amount of time that we're dealing with certain things. You know, they'll, they'll look at it as an advantage in that case. So it just depends what you're going to run into all kinds of different laboratories and, and being able to be flexible in those is definitely uh, something that you need to be uh, able to accept. And, and it's an, it's an interesting thing. I don't know how, you know, there, I'm reading this book now called noise by uh, Daniel Kenneman. Hopefully mm-hmm. it says, name properly, but it talks about fluctuations. And I, I imagine you have it and it's just natural with assessors. One assessor goes in, they're easier on a lab than another mm-hmm. one. They catch things or not. It talks, um, this book particularly talks, why I say this is it talks about judges and uh, parole hearings. And if if, mm-hmm. a ju- if someone's hungry, uh, the, the person's less likely to get paroled than after lunch. And they've mm-hmm. just run all these statistical samples. And I laugh 
Uh, yeah. It made me think of something because I laugh and, and, and Craig, Craig has to tell it about the chair. When you go into a lab, your expectations oh. on. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I get so mad. Chair. I get so mad when I go into laboratories that they don't have good seating options for their technicians because they're in the bench all the time. And I'll, I'll walk in and they've got like, you know, a, a chair with three legs and half arms duct taped. And, and uh, you know, I, I jokingly, I jokingly, I'm like, we need to get these guys more chairs, better chairs. They won't, if they're not comfortable, they're not going to calibrate well, you know. <laughs> it's true, though. I mean, I've seen some really horrible chairs. And once yeah. you could <laughs> you sit down on them wrong, you fall on your head. Yeah. And what's what, what message does that send? Yeah. Right. If you there, there's two messages here because there's one we've had some people that that have said no I want my chair I love it and it's mm. like it looks horrible like all the leather is off of it but it's comfortable it's shaped to my posterior yeah uh, okay well we're gonna buy this other chair and we're gonna sit in the corner and once you really want to shape the new chair to your posterior uh, you know you can you can. Uh, there, yeah, we we had uh, uh, they individual. If they listen to this, they'll laugh because I said, "Let's get rid of that." They're like, and they're like, "No, I love it." And then they ended up putting a blanket over it for a while because it was so bad. And and now I finally believe it's gone. It was just like just, that's just one of those that has to when they show up on Monday. It's like, "Where's my chair?" And it's like, I don't know. Oh yeah, because I I, I came in, and, <laughs> I had come in and set up a new computer and put a new chair there, and and what I got. Oh, thanks for the computer. By the way, where's that chair? <laughs> where's that old one? Don't know. <laughs> It, yeah. I so there's uh, th those that uh, that are looking for something fun to watch or something that'll give them a laugh. There's a show called Tacoma FD. It's on True oh, TV, and there is an episode specifically about a chair. Like his chair is so yep. horrible, and he doesn't. <laughs> yep. um, and that makes me think of the chair, which made me remember what Craig was saying about <laughs> when he goes in to see it. But if people want to laugh, it, it, you know, society's so serious, and everybody's overcharged. This show is just stupid. It's just stupid funny. It, you know, if you yeah. if you like the Super Troopers guys, um, oh, yeah. yeah, check yeah. it out. Uh, Tacoma FD. I, I love it. it. Makes me laugh. Uh, that always sunny in Philadelphia and. Um, yeah, uh, stupid humor. Uh, I, I met, I met those guys in line, um, at an airport. They were right in front of me. Uh, all of our flights got canceled at one time and it was the Steve Lemie, which is the yeah. mustache. Well, they're both yeah. the mustaches and, and easy. Uh, Heffernan and easy and Heffernan <laughs> were both, were both in front of me in line for like two hours. We just sat and talked about all the stuff they do. Uh, oh, they, so they're, awesome. they're hilarious. <clears throat> well, Craig, I, I really, again, appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, we're running out of time, but I, the next time, cause we talked beforehand about guide app and procedures and, yeah. and things like that. Maybe sometime you can come back on and chat about that. Cause that, that is another full show. I mean, that's another thing yeah. we can talk about. Yeah, and decision we, rules. Get decision rules and decision rules in there. Dis decision rules. I think we could probably we could probably have a whole other conversation about uh, um, you know just risk alone on in proficiency testing, let alone just you know risk in general and how to handle those things. And what people are getting is simple yeah. acceptance, shared risk. Do you know the risk you're getting? All that. Yeah. All it. Yeah. Do you? Decision, do you really know? Decision rules are are they are the bane of most assessors' existence currently. Yeah, because people yeah. aren't we know people aren't asking and then companies are stating because you uh, and yeah. and in the end users doesn't know what sometimes doesn't know what they want. So uh, I'll leave that I'll leave the part on that at this is most laboratories they go on and they use a terminology, they'll state that they're 
their their decision of compliance does not include considerations of uncertainty. And in, in, a roundabout, in a roundabout way, that's how they'll state on their certificate. And they, they're implying simple acceptance in when they yeah, do that. Right. And, and the, risk. The, the unfortunate part of that is that is that the ILAC requirements specifically state that you have to include uncertainty in your decision rule. Oh, so, absolutely. So, shall be accounted for. Yep, that there's, is there's so many different ways that you can do it without, say, taking a measurement value and adding it to the measurement and then saying, this is our tolerance. There's there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Oh, um, and then and then let's go with non-binary. So you sure. have non-binary, but you still have shared risk. Now you can actually, uh, if you follow G8, you can actually report conditional pass, conditional fail, or you can just do a simple acceptance where you really don't take the measurement and certainty into account by some reason. But why do you have? Why do we have those tools? Why do we implement some of those tools? And, I, and I'm naive on it. I, I on why they're implemented. Why Why would you implement a conditional pass or conditional fail if you're not going to force people to use it and actually report the risk? You mm-hmm. have you know two percent PFA and Z540. I like G8 had the two and a half percent. The you know the ninety five percent. And this is a really good topic for for another show or whatever to just go into. Uh, decision rules and and everything else. But before we end this one, uh, Ryan, Craig and I do have an ulterior agenda, uh, and it's not just <laughs> not just saying that Morehouse and and Sapphire um, are working together to make sure we can satisfy some PT needs with Force and and Sapphire is doing some great PT. We have a Facebook community called the Grand Order of the Allens, and we are constantly looking for the person whose name is Alan Allen. But if Alan, if you're out there and you're in metrology and there's an Alan, we'll even accept you if you're not in metrology. If there's an Alan in your name, A-L-L-E-N, middle name, first name, last name, please go check out Grand Order of the Allens. We're up to three people and we're looking to make a mass expansion. Uh, and that's why we've come on the podcast today to this hopefully awesome. double. The only reason. The only reason we want to double our, uh, and the membership is free. We may have a, a, a membership, uh, a, septem- a septennial uh, measurement gathering, but uh, we're not sure. We need to get those uh, numbers way up to. Uh, Question is, do you have a flag? Not yet. No. That comes with five members. We, we, need, right. we need at we least, need you have to have at least 10 members before you're officially assigned uh, a flag. Gotcha. <laughs> Man, I didn't read that in the order. I, I, you, I'm sorry. It's it's uh, you, you need to the the new version just came out. So, <laughs> oh, and I didn't get the update. Nope. Handbook 44 comes out. I guess I guess everybody's reading Handbook 44, and we everybody, yeah, everybody, and, is. and you're busy. <laughs> Well, Craig, how, how can people find you? Obviously, it's kind of random the assessors yeah. you get, but if they want to contact you for sapphire proficiency testing how do you want them to get a hold of you sure uh the best way is to go to uh sapphire-testing.com um that is going to be the easiest place to reach me from there you can get um my email address phone numbers uh on there there'll be uh some basic information um i will i will for say i need i need to update that website uh, so don't uh, <laughs> don't give me too much of a hard time about it, but you wear um, many hats. This, yes, it's hard yes. to get to the website. I know how that yes. is. Um, so uh, that way, and then also you can email me at cglunt c g l u n t at uh, sapphire hyphen testing dot com. Excellent. And Henry, it's a pleasure as always. I'm sure yep. I'll see you some more times throughout the year. Yep. You're and almost like a like a like a co-host. Oh. Uh-huh. 
Love it. I love coming on. The uh, For us, mh4s.com, uh, if, if you don't know, I spin steering people to documents and downloads. Uh, we have this section on our website uh, called Documents and Downloads. It's uncertainty guidance documents, all kinds of things, force and torque related. Some things that can be used other than that. Uh, there's tools to calculate coefficients, all free. There's uh, our ebook came out uh, this year. You can grab it on the website as well, or go to Amazon. Uh, really happy with the the whole ebook. And then watch for the uh, metrology uh, handbook that's coming out. There's uh, there's a chapter in there on force, a chap and a chapter on decision rules that we just finished. So I'm I'm all primed to discuss decision rules whenever. Awesome, yeah. We'll, we'll definitely uh, schedule something. Else. There's a lot to talk about with with the two of you, so we'll definitely do that down the road. But again, I thank you both for coming on, and thank you all for listening. <laughs>